So this morning, we come to the final installment of James. Praise Jesus. We finally made it. It's been emotional. We've had some highs. We've had some lows. But I think it's safe to say that we have made it safely thus far. Um, Let's see if we're still saying that at the end of this morning. Uh, So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13. The words, look at that. James chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here with us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us that you would come, that you would bring your word to life. That we wouldn't just be hearers, but doers of the word. Amen. So in these closing verses, we turn our attention to the, 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 the fundamental, foundational heart of the matter, and that is prayer. Prayer. And to be honest, not that I've found any of James particularly easy. I don't know why I decided to do James because it's been a real challenge for me personally. Um, but uh, to, so the whole of James has been difficult for me. But to end with prayer is especially difficult for me personally, just mostly because I feel so useless at it. I don't feel like I'm very very good at prayer. If you um, cast your mind back to when we embarked on this journey, the discovery with James, you may recall, sort of sounding like a little bit like a mafia hitman, Jimmy the Knees, uh, as he was known. He, he got that nickname because apparently his knees were like a camel's because of all that praying that he did. I don't know about you, I've got a long way to go on the calloused knees front, but this morning we find ourselves talking about prayer. And if you're happy to indulge me a little bit, I'd like to tackle these verses in reverse order, if I may. So we'll start with verses 17 and 18, and then we'll wend our way back to verses 13 to 16, just to keep you on your toes and make sure you stay awake. Basically, what we're trying to dig into here is what's James's overall message to us in these closing sentences of his letter. And essentially, what he's saying is prayer changes things. Prayer matters. It's not rocket science, but it's like he would have us go away. His takeaway would be, 
Prayer makes a difference. What we see here in verses 17 to 18 is, is prayer basically as a means of affecting God's purposes on the world. Have a look at from the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are, we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And so what James is saying here is, is look, Prayer makes a difference. Prayer changes things. Prayer has incredible power. Elijah prayed, and look what happened when he prayed. It, 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 it didn't rain, and then it did rain. Because he prayed, you know, it wasn't some fortuitous coincidence, coincidence. It wasn't some clever magic trick. What James is saying is it, it didn't rain, and it did rain, because Elijah prayed. Now, no doubt if um, Michael Fish or uh, some other meteorologist that any of you under the age of 35 have never heard of. Um, If he had been standing on Mount Carmel with Elijah, he'd have probably come up with some very plausible, very meteorologically correct explanation for the weather. Uh, He would probably have said it's got something to do with the, the jet stream or the Gulf Stream being too high or too low or not enough jet or not enough stream or whatever it is that was causing the problem. And the Bible wouldn't contradict that, would it? The Bible wouldn't contradict that scientific explanation and description of what was going on. Of course it was. It just, it just wouldn't allow for the scientific description of what was happening to be the whole and the entire story. It would certainly be part of it, but just not the entire story. You see, Michael Fish and his meteorological friends, they may be able to, although I'm not entirely convinced of this, they may be able to tell us how the rain came. But what the Bible does is the Bible tells us why the rain came. And the rain came in this instance that James is citing because God sent it. It would seem to be as simple as that. And rain may well be, I don't actually know what rain is, but it may well be the collision of um, air masses in the atmosphere, absolutely. But it is also the gift of God, which is why prayer, far from being like any just empty superstition, um, it's a necessary expression of our faith. It's a necessary and vital and integral outworking of our faith because it, it, it challenges the assumption that the world is just this gigantic machine just kind of grinding endlessly on and on and on. The reins of the universe are in someone's hands. And that someone is someone we can reach out to, someone we can speak to, someone we can communicate with, someone we can have a conversation with, someone we can have a relationship with. And God clearly has his purposes and his plans, but what's so like mind-blowing, what's so in- incredible, what's so extraordinary is that this sovereign king of the universe is determined to work out, he has determined, that the way he wants to work out those purposes and those plans, bizarrely, only really known best to himself, is that he wants to work all of those purposes and those plans out with our participation. He wants our conscious uh, cooperation in those things. He wants our wills and our actions and our minds involved. He, He wants us in on the game of seeing his kingdom come and his kingdom established. And prayer 
is one of the ways that God fills and fulfills that intention for us to be participative in God's work. It's, it's a bit like when a farmer, a farmer goes out and he plows um, his field and then he sows the seed. And, and what he knows is he knows that his hard physical labor is the means by which he's going to reap a harvest that God is going to give. And in the same way, it's like the hard spiritual work of prayer is the appointed means for obtaining the blessings that God wants to give us and the world in which we find ourselves. If the farmer doesn't um, plow his field, he doesn't sow any seed, he is not going to reap a harvest. Not because God isn't willing to give, but because the farmer hasn't used the means that God has appointed. In the same way, if we don't pray, we're not going to see all of the things that God is wanting to see happen in our lives in the way that he wants us to see them and to experience them and to encounter them. And this isn't about, don't misunderstand, this isn't about me impertinently imposing my will onto God. This is about us learning together how to use the means that God has provided and God has ordained for accomplishing his purposes in the world. We touched on this at the end of chapter 4, so I won't go into it all again. But just to reiterate, all the many promises in the Bible about prayer have to be interpreted in the light of Scripture, particularly things like John's words in 1 John um, chapter 5. That is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So prayer changes things. Prayer makes a difference. Now let's have a look at verses um, 13 to 16, which like last week, are a little bit more tricky, which is why I'm kind of trying to shove them uh, to the end. Verses 13 to 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I think there are two connections in here that James wants us to make uh, in our thinking when we're reading this. And the first is a connection between prayer and healing. And the second is a connection between sickness and sin. So let's have a go at tackling these two things. First of all, there's a connection between prayer and healing. Okay, so our culture, as we know, is literally like a world away from James's time. And in their day, in their time, their whole uh, attitude and assumption about the world in general and about health and about healing in particular is just very, very different to us. They didn't have the same levels of technical, medical understanding uh, that, that modern medical science has instilled into us. And so... Back in James's day, theories of health and healing, it was much more, uh, much more holistic, actually, than uh, today. An individual was much more likely to be treated as, a, as like a single psychosomatic whole rather than um, being divided into its component parts, you know, like the whole thing, body, mind, and spirit. And as such, it would have been much more difficult for them to distinguish whether any healing that happened, was, whether it was natural or whether it was supernatural, because... 
as far as these guys were concerned, all healing came from God. That's where it originated from. And so you see the elders back in James' day, they're using the conventional medicine of the day. You see that in verse 14, anointing them with oil. And you see them doing it in like this prayerful, consecrated manner. In the second half of verse 14, in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil, in the name of the Lord. The whole thing consciously and intentionally dependent on God and God's intervention. They, like we do today, they believe that God heals. We believe that God heals today. We believe that part of the purpose in Jesus coming to the earth was to usher in the kingdom of God. It was to inaugurate and to announce the rule and the reign of God. And integral to Jesus' mission was the destruction of the works of the enemy. And as far as we understand from the scripture, things like sickness and disease and death are the works of the enemy that Jesus has come to destroy as the kingdom is established. Now, not only did Jesus come to do battle and to wage war with all of the works of the enemy, he also commissioned his disciples to do the same. He gave them authority and power over demons and over disease and death. And if you don't believe me, have a look at Matthew chapter 10, have a look at Luke chapters 9 and 10, just read the Gospels. You see it throughout. And so it was perfectly natural for the elders of the church to do exactly what we find them doing here in James. It was part of their worldview. It was part of their biblical framework. It was part of their theology. They understood this. And so they would anoint with oil in the name of the Lord, bringing these two things together, both the natural and the supernatural dimensions of healing. Now, some Christians in the world seem to think that if you're seeking the Lord for healing, which is a good thing to do, um, you shouldn't therefore need to seek advice from the doctor, you know, because somehow that shows a lack of faith. Silly. Uh, equally, there are other Christians who seem to think that if you're getting medical advice, you've gone to see your GP or your specialist or whatever and for a particular ailment, then you don't need to be prayed for. Well, that's also silly. You know, both of those things are nonsense. The bi biblical thing to do if you're sick is to pray as you pop your pills. These two things go hand in hand. Medication is to be used. We are to thank the Lord for it. I certainly do. The only reason I can stand up here just about is because of medication. But medication is to be used in the name of the Lord because all healing, we believe, comes from God because healing is a demonstration of the fullness and the outworking of the kingdom of God coming to bear on the earth. Do you ever think of your doctors as ministers? Because that's what they are. Doctors, nurses, they are ministers of the kingdom. Even the unbelieving ones, they are ministers of God's healing because they are ushering in the value, kingdom principles of no more sickness. They are watching and witnessing and outworking God's works of healing. You know, just the same way that astronomers are watching God's universe or meteorologists are watching God's weather. Whether they believe or realize it or not, that it's God's universe or it's God's weather or it's God's healing, 
it doesn't really make any difference. Uh, while we're on the subject, if we are on the subject, to refuse either to take um, medicine or to receive prayer for healing on the grounds that, you know, if God wants to heal me, he will. Um, that is about as crazy as the man who refuses to use an umbrella on the grounds that if God doesn't want me to get wet, he will. It's, just don't do that. God uses means to bless us. And in the realm of healing, the Bible clearly indicates that prayer is one of the means that he is pleased to use, and medicine is another. Cast your mind back to the Old Testament. Hezekiah, he was sick. You know, he had some kind of carbuncle or something. And we're told what the prophet Isaiah did is that the prophet Isaiah goes to visit him and puts a hot poultice on the boil and then tells Hezekiah to go and seek the Lord. These two things, medicine and prayer, hand in hand. Sounds like good, sound, biblical medicine to me. Okay, let's now have a look at verse 15. I can't put it up in number. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Okay, so this is where it gets really tricky. So on the surface, this verse sounds like a promise that healing will always follow believing prayer. Now, obviously, it can't mean that because even in the New Testament, that wasn't the case. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is forced to leave his, his pal Trophimus uh, behind because he was unwell, because he hadn't been healed. Um, Timothy himself was often sick. He had stomach problems, uh, which is why Paul suggests that he stops drinking only water and uses a little wine uh, because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. And Unlike some people's interpretations, we don't believe here in the vineyard that that was wine to be rubbed on his stomach. We believe that that was to be imbibed and ingested. Uh, but, um, you know, if prayer was this infallible remedy for all sicknesses among Christians, why weren't, why weren't these guys healed? Surely they should have been. You know, or in fact, why does any Christian ever die of natural causes or from diseases like cancer or heart disease? Why does, that, why does that happen? If healing is as certain as verse 15 suggests, then surely the mortality rate in the church at least should be considerably less than it is anywhere else in the world, which as far as I'm aware it isn't. And the key word here, I think, of course, is faith. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now, the difficulty is that some of us treat faith um, as if it was some kind of psychic energy force out there that has its sort of this therapeutic power of its own. You know the sort of thing I mean, the sort of so-called faith healing, which is a sort of almost medical, I don't know, application of the power of positive thinking. You know, just try harder, just must have more faith, must have more faith. If I could only like conjure up more faith, just the size of a mustard seed, that's all I need, but I'm so useless, I can't even conjure up enough faith that's the size of a mustard seed because I can't move a clod of soil, let alone a mountain. So when you're sick, you just got to believe that you're going to get well. And if you believe hard enough, you, you will get well. 
I'm pretty sure that's not what the Bible means by a prayer of faith. Faith in the Bible always has just one object and one object only, and that is God himself. Faith is a personal, ongoing commitment and trust in God. And, and faith is powerful purely because God is, not because faith as any kind of force can actually do anything. So what does the prayer of faith mean? Well, it might mean one of two things. It might mean that we're to trust in God's power to heal. It might mean we're to trust in God's power to heal. The Bible's full of encouragements that we should never limit our prayers because we have a lack of confidence in God's power because God can do anything. Or it could mean that we are to trust in God's purpose to heal. God's purpose to heal. Um, you know, but we're not at liberty to assume that the Bible's promise to answer prayer gives us some kind of carte blanche to pray for literally anything that we fancy in the assurance that we're going to get it. Remember what we looked at in chapter 4 when we talked about it being possible to ask amiss? And so you see this tension in the New Testament between trusting God's power and trusting God's purpose. Remember the chap in um, Matthew chapter 8? He came before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing is purpose, and you can is God's power. If you are willing, does it fit with the purposes of God? You can, because I know you can, is God's power. And the fact that the sick man said, if you are willing, it wasn't a lack of faith on his part. He was just somebody who understood this tension between power on the one hand and purpose on the other. What does James mean? Uh, does he mean um, prayer which is confident of God's power to heal, that, that it has this condition of the clause, if it's your will? So is God's power conditional on his purpose? Or does he mean prayer which is confident of God's purposes to heal, um, and if that's the case, it would imply that the elders here in James have some special level of discernment about what God's purposes are and God's intention is. And maybe this is the secret. You know, we see people in the uh, Christians who have this incredible gifting of healing. They seem to just, you know, lay hands on the sick and they just all get well. And it's like, what's going on? Um, maybe they have some special kind of discernment that God's purposes are about to do X, Y, and Z. Now, a trust in God's power to heal or a trust in God's purposes to heal doesn't actually exhaust all the possibilities of verse 15. There is a third alternative too. Um, as it stands, verse 15 is thoroughly ambiguous, which is really helpful. The prayer often faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. Literally, the Greek text reads, the prayer of faith will save the sick person. So it's quite possible that James may not be speaking about physical healing at all here, but is talking about spiritual salvation and final resurrection from the grave, which Jesus has promised to everyone who seeks him. And this is the reason, certainly one of the reasons, that the Catholic Church has interpreted this whole passage as being applicable to the dying and what they call the sacrament of the final unction. There is no unconditional promise of healing in here, as far as I can tell. Healing is the prerogative of 
God. And prayer is one of the methods that God uses, one of the means that God uses by which to bring healing. And medicine is another of God's means, another of God's methods to bring healing. And uh, as followers of Jesus, we should be using both means, always recognizing that neither is a guarantee of healing. It's in the hands of God, and only he can provide the healing. Okay, one further thing that James has to teach us about healing, and there's this, there's this connection between sickness and sin. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You can tell why I'm absolutely loving James. James clearly sees this connection between sickness and sin. And it may well be that may be a factor in one of the reasons that modern medicine has failed to eradicate disease because, in uh, part at least, it fails to recognize that connection. Um, modern medicine has a tendency, don't beat me up, you doctors, to, to separate parts of the human physical condition from its spiritual state. You know, the church has a tendency to separate people into their spiritual state and forget about their physical or mental state. Um, but we are complicated biochemical machines with all these different components. And, and then for one reason or another, when one bit of us breaks down, stops working properly, we become ill. So the doctor is really there to try and find out which bits of us are broken and then how can they intervene and fix those bits. But as far as the Bible is concerned, if we're just solely thinking about the physical components, like we're trying to mend a car, um, we're missing understanding the full uh, context of disease. According to the Bible, we're not separated into bits, you know, body, soul, and spirit. We're a single psychosomatic whole. And for that reason, according to the scripture, spiritual malfunctions manifest in our bodies physically, and physical manifestations have an impact on our spiritual well-being. And if James is right, that there is this connection between human sin and human illness, then you're not going to be able to eradicate one without eradicating the other. Does that make sense? Now, I need to tread very carefully here, and you need to hear this very clearly. In verse 15, he says, if he has sinned. And it is by no means certain that a sick person must necessarily be guilty of some sin. That is not what he is saying here. The sickness is not necessarily a direct result of your sin. It's a direct result of sin because it's the work of the enemy. It takes us back to Job. Job's friends wanted to insist that Job must actually be a sinner. But the whole point of the story is he wasn't. Satan had just gone to God and said, I want to sift, I want to test your servant, Job. Take the blind man who was healed in John chapter 9. His, the disciples asked Jesus, you know, Rabbi, who has sinned? This this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Someone's got to, be, someone's got to blame. Must be sins of the fathers or generations or his own sin or something because he's blind. And Jesus says, mm, no, 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 what are you talking about? That's a paraphrase. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. 
said Jesus. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that we suffer the consequences of sin in that kind of individualized way. Does that make sense? Which is why it says in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What he's doing is he seems to be calling us together as community, as a family, as a church, suggesting that a church which deals with sin and failure in this radically open way, this, this incredibly spiritually open way whereby we are confessing our sins and our failures to one another, we're bringing out all of the stuff, our stuff, all of the stuff, out into the community of the church. And then after bringing that stuff up and bringing that stuff out and confessing that stuff to one another, then praying for one another, he is suggesting, I think in James, that that's likely to be a church that's going to know greater physical and spiritual health as a result. I'm coming into land. Um, I find this passage difficult. Um, there are some real tensions in here. Like, I, I know that. And none of this is by any means straightforward. At some point, um, if we haven't already, we are all going to have to struggle with the tension between the prayer offered in faith and whether or not we're going to see healing. Sometimes, and I might add, it feels like too many times, we pray our very best prayers. We have prayed our very best prayers. And the person we've been praying for doesn't get healed. We seek the very best medical advice, and then the person that we love most in the world just doesn't get better. And it's brutal. We've seen it, we've seen it here in this church too many times. Um, just a couple of days ago was the anniversary of Linda Spicer's death. You're like, what was that about? We prayed. Even now, some of our oldest friends, um, my very first house group leaders when I came to this church 30 years ago, uh, and they are among the best prayers of faith that I have ever, ever met. They are battling with the very last stages of a cancer that they've been waging war with for the last 15 years, and it is not looking good. She's going to die. She's 71. Some of you here this morning, you're, you're, you've faced similar battles, or you are facing them right now, either personally or in the lives of the people you love. I get that this is hard. There, are, um, there is so much about this stuff that just doesn't feel like it makes any sense. And it's a real struggle. I, I am trying, uh, as best I possibly can, to look at and to explore and to teach what's in here. Because no matter how hard it is, no matter how hard it is for us to get our heads around, whether we don't understand it or not, this is our plumb line, this is our yardstick, this is our go-to. We have to grapple with this. But I think how we work this stuff out in practice, what we actually think this means in practice, how we live this stuff out, 
some of this tension around healing and not seeing healing, how we work that, in day, work that out day in, day out, is actually the task that befalls us as a family of believers. It befalls us as a fellowship. It befalls us as a family to work this out together. And it includes and it involves each one of us standing alongside those who are sick, whether they're sick um, physically, mentally, whatever their sickness may be, how are we doing as a fellowship, as a church, in standing alongside people? And one of the challenges that we face is not how do we stand alongside people in the moment of their sickness, but when their sicknesses are chronic and long-term and ongoing. And we as a church, we're really, really good at responding, I think, to people in their need in the short term. One of the things I find really hard, one of the things I think we find hard is how do we stand and walk alongside people on a long journey with a long struggle of some kind of physical or mental illness. That's just something together as a fellowship we should look at and we should look into and we should think about how can we do that better? How can we be Jesus better to people who are struggling with long-term, chronic, ongoing illnesses? How do we stand alongside those who are struggling? How do we stand alongside people as they seek out the best medical advice and support that they can? And how do we stand alongside them in prayer? So that's what James is driving at. That we as the fellowship, as we as their brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand alongside them and we hold up their arms during whatever the, the, the challenges that they're facing, and we commit to praying for them.